These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds Podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. One of my favorite things is watching people's financial journeys as they progress. A lot of us start off in debt and maybe a little bit bummed out and trying to figure out how do we get out of this mess. But when you stick with the plan longer term, you are able to achieve some really incredible things with your finances. And that's what today's guest is living proof of. I love following her journey. I think it's so inspiring. And we're going to dive into her background and a little bit about uh, how to house hack today. Before we do that, I have to share one of my favorite money wins. This money win comes from Gloria. Gloria is a student of Become a Financial Coach course. And I have to say, I am so crazy proud of her and the work that she's done. She started the course and immediately had three clients. Like within two weeks, she was really hitting the ground running. And I've been really loving watching her journey and seeing her grow her business and help other people with their finances. I don't think we have nearly enough people in the world as a financial coach. And a lot of people say, why would you teach other financial coaches? Isn't that your competition? No, it's really not. Frankly, I think there's so much room for so many incredible voices. And it's just really fun to see Gloria launch her business and start to take control of her future. So congrats, Gloria. I have been so crazy proud of you. And I don't think I tell you that nearly enough, but way to go. If you are interested in joining Become a Financial Coach, it is by far the best course for the price point out there. So definitely take a look at it. You can go to WhitneyHanson.com and there's a section on my website where you can click on courses and that's where you will get to click on the courses and learn all about all the fun offerings that I have. So if you've been considering becoming a financial coach, then definitely check out that course. It's an entire guideline of how I started my business and that became my full-time job. So you can possibly do the same thing too if your heart desires. 
buyers. All right, let's go ahead and dive into today's guest. Sarah Wilson is also known as The Budget Girl, is a YouTuber, debt destroyer, side hustler, speaker, and financial wellness advocate. She has made videos on her YouTube channel, Budget Girl, for the past six years six years on how to live a frugal, fun, and financially fearless life. She showcases ways of managing money on any income, paying off debt, building wealth, and living your best life with the aid of a budget. The coolest thing to me is Sarah has documented all of her successes and her challenges while paying off $33,000 of student loans in just three years. And get this, on a tiny reporter salary of $26,000 per year. She did all of this directly through YouTube in real time and has amassed over 65,000 subscribers and over 8 million views. Yeah, she's kind of a badass, like definitely, definitely one to watch when it comes to the finances. She also runs BudgetGirl.com, which is a site devoted to providing free advice and resources for anyone trying to better their finances. The coolest part in the entire world is she paid off all of her debt, and now she's able to become a real estate investor and is currently house hacking her first duplex, a $230,000 home in College Station, which she pays just $150 each month. Like, that's her payment. That's what she pays due to house hacking. It's so incredible. Here's what you're going to learn in this episode. We talk a lot about how she was actually able to pay off that $33,000 of debt when you're making less than $30,000. That can seem like a massive fee, and we talk a lot about what you have to go through to make that happen. Finding a community on YouTube, getting to the point where you no longer feel like you're sacrificing when budgeting, this is such a big question I get a lot, and I think her answer to this is super impressive. We talk about tips for sharing your journey on YouTube. So if you do decide to go that route, how do you deal with the hate and the support and all of that stuff that comes with it? It can be a little bit overwhelming sometimes. We also go into quite a bit of uh, conversation around house hacking and basically an introduction to if you're considering this, this is how you can get started. We talk about how to analyze house hacking situations, important real estate rules to consider, and even a little bit about home warranties. It's a really great conversation. I think you guys are going to love Sarah as much as I do. I am so excited to introduce you to my friend, Sarah Wilson. But before we dive into the content, let's hear a quick word from today's sponsor. I don't know what it was, but when I hit 30, that's when I started to really start thinking about my future and what happens when I die and all of that stuff. And it's a little bit somber, I I get it, but it's important work. For a lot of people, life insurance is truly the difference between being able to grieve and not have to worry about a ton of the financial obligations and having to go back to work too soon. Like It's a really, really big deal. And I know that men generally have more life insurance than women, and typically it's twice the amount of coverage. So it's a huge discrepancy. And one of the companies that is working really hard on fixing this is Jenny Life. Jenny Life wants to shrink that gap. And it doesn't matter if you're a working mom or a single mom or an expecting mom, maybe you're single or maybe your kids are like my kids and have four legs and they happen to be furry and bark a lot. (laughs) Regardless of what your situation is, you need life insurance. That's where Jenny Life comes in. Here's something crazy. Before Jenny Life, if a pregnant woman wanted life insurance, she'd actually have to use her pregnancy weight. And that usually equates to higher rates. Or even at one time in the United States, it was illegal, illegal for women to own a life insurance policy. 
Like, what? Isn't that nuts? Jenny Life is doing a really great job. They make it fast and easy for women to know their families will be taken care of with life insurance that's uniquely built for your needs. With Jenny Life, you can get your life insurance policy without blood work or unnecessary red tape, and you can do it all online from the comfort of your home. Here's how it works. They ask you five simple questions. They curate plans from dozens of A-rated insurance carriers, and it gives you a personalized budget-friendly life insurance quote in seconds. For example, a healthy 32-year-old woman can get a half a million dollars in coverage for about a dollar a day without ever stepping into a doctor's office. It's so critical that women take control of their finances, and life insurance is one of those pieces that is going to give you a lot more peace of mind in your future. So it's super, super important. And I definitely believe that life insurance is something that every woman should have in place because every family deserves a secure financial future. So take a few minutes to get your Jenny Life policy right now. Visit JennyLife.com slash money nerds to get a free quote right now. That's JennyLife.com slash money nerds for your life insurance quote today. Again, JennyLife.com slash money nerds. Okay, now back to the show. Sarah Wilson, thank you so much for hanging out. Of course, anytime, friend. This is fun. It's been a minute. I am so stoked to chat with you because I have not had you on the podcast yet, and I'm embarrassed to say that. So thank you for taking the time to to chill and share your experience. This is weird, but I also feel like I've been on your podcast. Are you sure? <laughs> no, serious. Did we both just hallucinate that? I think we just hallucinated. I think it was <laughs> I think probably been you on two. my channel. Yeah, Maybe I think that's, that's what, what we're thinking of. of. So. Take us back for somebody that has not heard of you and they don't know your story. Paint us this picture of like, why are you so passionate about personal finance? And and tell us a little bit about your journey. Sure. So I graduated college. I got a degree in journalism and communication in 2010, and I got a job as a newspaper reporter. Now, I don't know if you know this, Whitney, but uh, reporting is not the most lucrative of careers. Mm-hmm. And when I was in college, I did this really fun thing where people told me that I could take out extra student loans to live off of. So I did because I was a moron. And I <laughs> graduated with $27,000 worth of debt. And then the government told me that I made so little that I didn't have to pay on it. Wow. That my first job as a newspaper reporter in the same town I graduated from. And so I was like, okay. And... <laughs> <laughs> then a couple years later, I got laid off. Once again, newspaper problems. And suddenly I had $33,000 worth of debt. Mm. So unemployed, terrified, huge mountain of debt, unsure if I was going to be able to get another job in my field or if I was going to have to like waitress. And of course, there's nothing wrong with waitressing, but you can't pay off, you know, $30,000 of debt very easily on tips. So I decided then and there that. I was going to do something about my money situation when I got a new job. And I also knew that if I ever was in that situation where I was laid off again, that it would be a lot easier just to have to find the money to live off of than to find the money to live off of. Plus this giant rock on my back of student loans that was like weighing me down. I felt like I didn't have any options. So about six months later, I did find a new job same salary that I was at before $26,000 a year. I had to move to Louisiana. I was in Mississippi before and I just started hustling. I got on a very strict budget. I started picking up side gigs. I started learning how to save money by like meal planning, doing other stuff like that. I picked up 
all sorts of extra jobs. And I paid off $10,000 that first year, making $26,000 a year. And then I did it again. (laughs) And then I moved for a slightly better paying job of $30,000 a year to Arkansas, where there was literally nothing to do because the town had 5,000 people in it. So all I did was make YouTube videos about paying off debt and budgeting and try to figure out how to earn more money to pay off debt and budget. And it took me three years and three months, but I paid off the $33,000. That is so incredible. And I'm I mean, of course, I have so many questions, but one specifically is a lot of people that are making that much money immediately think that it's not possible for them, that it's just going to be unrealistic. So tell us a little bit about when you say you got on a strict budget, like what does that actually look like? That actually looks like, and I can send you like a screenshot of one of my budgets from back in the day, but that means like $40 a week for food basically no eating out. I spent about $20 a month on eating out, which meant I got to go to Taco Bell like twice. I um, picked up hobbies that would like feed me. (laughs) So I did some secret shopping, which uh, I went to restaurants and they would pay me to like time how long the food got out, take pictures of it, da, 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 da. And they'd also reimburse me for my meal. So that would give me a little bit of money back. I also worked at a pizza joint delivering pizzas, which meant some nights I got some free pizza and I got tips. And there's only so much you can cut your budget. But I'll be the first to admit that when you're just starting out, it can seem impossible to suddenly drop to a bare bones budget. So I recommend doing it marginally, make it a challenge every single month. How can I save $20? How can I make 20 more dollars? And by doing that kind of baby stepping my way into better habits, money habits specifically, I had never meal planned. I had never shopped based on the circular sales. I went to the grocery store like every couple of days and just thought about what do I want to eat tonight? And so I started improving those basic variable spending habits and the way I treated money. And I kind of gamified it as well in that I challenged myself every single month to see how much I could improve. So I did a lot of that. I made mistakes along the way, of course, but overall I was able to pay off $10,000 that first year. And the next so incredible. How did you stay motivated? I know budget burnout is a very real thing. And especially when you're paying off debt, three years is short, but long. (laughs) So how did you stay focused? At the beginning, I thought it was going to be like six years. Those were my original projections. Yeah. And What's really cool is that it goes faster if you're really focused. I was also alone, so I didn't have anyone. I was single, um, just with my dog in Louisiana. Um, No friends there, of course. So as I made friends, they had to kind of be in the same mental mindset as I was in that that we're not going out to spend money. (laughs) You can come over, but we're not going to go out and spend money kind of thing. And yeah, it was hard. I mostly leaned on the internet. Now, at the time, this was six years ago, there weren't a lot of debt-free and budgeting YouTubers. Now there are a ton, which is incredible. At the time, there was Lydia Sin, um, His and Her Money, and a channel that is now gone called Debt is Dumb. Those were the only people I could find on YouTube that were actually talking about money, actually talking about paying off debt. And I needed to look at other people like that to inspire me to keep me going. So I decided to be that single person on a debt-free journey on YouTube. And so I started making videos for that. And I found my community through that. And that was my accountability, posting those videos every single week where I actually put the amount of debt that I had in each video title at that day was extremely motivating because I felt a commitment to my viewers, even when there were like four. 
yeah, to no doubt. show that I was making progress. Because so many people were telling me, you can't do this. There's no point in trying. Why, where did that come from for people? Like, why do, why do you feel like people were naysaying? Um, probably a fear mindset. Yeah. Probably they were looking at their own situation, which was similar or around that and being like, I can't do it. So you can't either. So I don't know if it was a troll issue or if it was just coming from fear, but it motivated me to show them that I could. I love that. Have you always been financially motivated or is that something you had to learn after college? I had zero financial education growing up. Actually, my mom um, was a hoarder, actually. So her only time out of the house was when she was shopping. So in my child brain, I thought that when you weren't at school, anytime you went out of the house, you went shopping. And we would go to places like Tuesday morning and she'd buy like 12 Royal Albert teapots just because they were on sale on a good deal. And she'd intend to give them out as gifts and then she never would. So we actually had an entire room in my house growing up that was just full of treasures that she hoarded. And it was, there were other factors at play. She was very ill. She was in a lot of pain all the time. And that was kind of how she coped. But between that and I was, I was never given any sort of of allowance or if I needed something, I would ask for the money for it and it was either given or it wasn't. So I never had a relationship with money growing up. I was, I was very lucky. I never was in need of anything. And my parents even put me in some like piano lessons and stuff like that, but I never got to really use it until after they were gone, which was when I was 16, actually. So I went off to college with no parental support and just had to sign up for student loans because that was the only way I could go. Now I worked through college, so I wouldn't have had to take out quite as many as I did, but I took out more. (laughs) No, I I love that you're mentioning this because I was with you on that. The narrative when you don't have that support from your family or even like high school counselors, they, it seems like everybody's pushing you to just take out debt and to make your life during college as easy as possible. At least that was the narrative I was told. So I I get it. I totally get it. What was your job through college? I had a bunch actually. I uh, worked at the campus newspaper, which was a paid position. I worked freelance for the local newspaper. Um, And I worked there over Christmases and summers as well. And I did kind of freelance work for them throughout the week. I worked uh, as a dog sitter. I cleaned an ice cream shop at night. And I um, did a lot of like babysitting. And I also worked for a catering company. So I had the hustle. Yeah, you did. But I have no idea where any of that money went. Because between classes, I'd go to the store and look for just like good deals. Yep. So I was not saving any of that money. Um, and I probably could have paid for most of college if I had just actually been on a budget at the time. I, I totally feel that. I look, I mean, I think our stories are very similar in that way too, where I look back and I'm like, frick, Whitney, like <laughs> do better. You could have, you could have made different choices. Mm-hmm. And I know at that time it's, it's easy to beat yourself up over it, but you, you haven't let that stop you. Like that wasn't a hindrance for you. So tell us a little bit about once you paid off the debt you have all of this freedom. What next? Well, at the very, very end of my debt-free journey, like a month before I paid it off, I got a new job where I am now at Texas A&M in College Station, Texas. And uh, at the time, I think I was getting 42000 a year, which was, of course, a huge increase from the 30000 that I was getting 
as the editor at the Mina Star, but I'm now up to 50,000 here. Yes, get it, girl. And I absolutely love it. I did, I felt like I needed to get out of journalism just because the hours, the benefits, the pay, and I've got a long career in front of me. So I wanted to move to university communications. They really, really treat me well here. I'm thrilled about it. I'm in my office lunch on my lunch break right now. And uh, yeah, so I immediately started to save up a big emergency fund of $10,000, which I just got to tell you, helps me sleep at night every single night. So much, <laughs> so yeah. much. And then I did started some investing and I actually save and invest 40% of my income. Whoa. Yeah. And uh, I very recently purchased my first home, which is a duplex, which I am house hacking. So I actually have have the hiccups today. (laughs) I actually only have $150 of housing costs in my budget each month. Holy crap. Okay, so much to unpack here. First and foremost, (laughs) 40% of your income. What are the sacrifices that you make to make that happen? I don't really think I have any sacrifices. I have increased most of the categories in my budget, if not all of them, since getting out of debt. So I was on this really bare bones budget. And now I feel like I have more than enough money to do anything I want with for um, miscellaneous spending, for personal spending, for eating out, for groceries. I don't feel like I even have a little clothing sinking fund. I also have sinking funds for Christmas and travel and all these other things. And I don't feel like I am holding myself back at all. If I want something, I generally get it. Now, of course I can't get everything that I want, but if I actually decide that something will improve my life, I can usually get it and just save up a little bit for it if it's not in the immediate budget. So I don't feel like I live a life of sacrifice anymore. I think that's important too. And I think so many times we, we think it's sacrifice when really it's self-care. And it's, you know, taking care of future Sarah, future Whitney. It's important to do that. I'm curious, you mentioned sinking funds. Can you talk if somebody's never heard of that? Like, what the heck is a sinking fund? They're my favorite thing on the planet. So, of course, I would. So, (laughs) I started saving and sinking funds during my debt payoff. And it started out with a um, pet sinking fund. Now, my dog, Rory, um, she needs an annual checkup and, you know, vaccinations and and the little key tag and everything like that. And at the time it cost about a hundred dollars. Now at the time I was making about two grand a month. And so a hundred dollar expense that I wasn't really planning for through like a huge kink into the works at the time. So what I decided to do is after having to figure out how to pay for that and not pay as much to death that month, is I decided to divide that amount that I needed by 12 and save that amount into a dedicated savings account each month. And so that makes it only, you know, less than that's $8 a month (laughs) that I need. That's nothing. So I incorporated that into my budget. And then at the next year, I had that money just waiting and ready for me. So then I started a car repair and replacement sinking fund, because no matter what, your car is eventually going to break down. It's going to need new tires, it's going to need new serpentine belt. You will always have car repair expenses, even if you buy brand new, which I don't recommend. (laughs) So I uh, started saving, I think it was like $40 a month for that. Now I save a little more. Um, And I have actually 10 sinking funds that run the gamut from annual 
tax savings for my business to travel and really fun stuff like that and Christmas to other things that I have to pay for either semi-annually or annually, um, either things I have to pay for semi-annually or annually or things that I'm saving up to use eventually. Mm. And that makes up a couple hundred dollars every month in my budget. But it also means that I have all this extra freedom because I have this kind of pocket of savings that sits between me and my emergency fund that I can use if anything unexpected ever comes up and nothing ever messes with my budget again. Are these like actual savings accounts or how do you structure it? I use Capital One 360 and Ally does the same thing. Eventually you can have multiple savings accounts or buckets in Ally with actual names. So I have those 10 different savings accounts that are all named and some of them have they almost all of them have auto drafts in them so they just automatically fund and if I ever need them I just pull the money out of that into my checking account with Capital One 360 and then I can use it immediately. Mm, okay so I know a lot of people have questions about like I get this a lot too how much do I put into my car fund how much do I put into Christmas like do you have any suggestions or recommendations of where people start? Mm-hmm. If there is a specific number that you have to get to it's easier because you can just take how many months you have until you have to pay that thing, like a tax payment or something like that, and then do the division. And that's how much you need to save each month. If you're saving up for something that is kind of intangible and you don't know when it's going to happen, like car repairs, I would say you're going to have to kind of play with that a little bit. At first, I think I started out at like $40 a month. And then at the at one point, I changed it to 100 And then every single year I review all of my deposits and everything like that. And if I look at those account balances and I see like, is this too much? At one point, Rory's sinking fund got to like $900. She does not need $900 in her sinking fund. That's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. So I decided, unless there was like a major surgery or something in case, in that case, I'd use my emergency fund. So you have to kind of go in and readjust as you see that you're putting in too much or not enough. I'd say at least annually, Um, And it also, you're going to have to balance that with what your main financial goal is. I was kind of careful to make it lower when I was in debt because I wanted to throw as much as possible to my debt instead of just having all this money in savings. Um, Now I'm a little bit more generous with myself about it. Um, For instance, I save $100 a month for travel and that account is huge because I haven't gone anywhere this year. Not yet. (laughs) Yeah, not yet. (laughs) Um, so yeah, you're, it's, I wish I had a hard and fast rule for it, but you're going to have to find a balance of what you're comfortable with while still meeting your other money goals. That's fair. Um, Yeah, I I hear you. It is tough to give like a general rule, but I I think that's really good advice too. I have to ask about your YouTube channel. I know there's a lot of business owners that always aspire to have a YouTube channel. Like me, I dabble. You, you see this, you've seen my YouTube journey. I'm a dabbler. I love your YouTube videos. They're great. Thank you. I appreciate that. So for somebody that might want to share their journey on YouTube, any words of wisdom or any like caution points or lessons learned that you can impart on us? Yeah, I would say first, don't invest in a ton of expensive equipment. A lot of my videos are filmed on my iPhone with my tripod, just literally sitting where you guys are now. No way. I didn't realize no that. Or anything. Still. <laughs> Still. <laughs> I, and I have all the lighting kits and I have some nicer cameras now for other things. And I have a GoPro that helps me do like my time-lapse stuff for like my new mm-hmm. duplex diary series. But for four years, 
I just That's wild and a tripod in front of a window. Um, I would also say, uh, so you can get the equipment later as you need it, but don't invest in all this editing software and stuff. I used Windows Movie Maker for four years and now I use iMovie. So I'm still not <laughs> using anything super professional. Um, I would say pay attention to SEO, which is not the funnest thing to learn. It's not, but it's very important. Make sure that when you're making videos, you are using very good titles for them that are searchable. So, uh, a lot of the really huge vloggers will do kind of clickbaity headlines like, You can't believe what happened, but nobody is searching for that. Those people have already kind of amassed a following that will click on anything they make. As a beginner, you have to think about what people are searching for, what your area of expertise is and how you can best deliver that. Mm. How do you balance as a creative person creating content that you like to create and creating content that your audience likes to watch? That is a hard one that I am struggling with constantly, honestly, because some of my best videos are, or I wouldn't say best, but I would say the, I can make a video that's 10 habits of frugal people and it'll get probably about 20,000 views, about twice what my average is. Um, But often that tends to start feeling like, you know, those kind of niche titles of, they're very clickable, but I get very sick of making them because I've been (laughs) regurgitating this advice on the internet for six years. So then I'll do something more like my Duplex Diaries series, which is a highly edited and produced and takes weeks to put out (laughs) the same number of views on it as I do on a video where I sit down with a tripod in front of this background and just talk about like five random things and it doesn't feel like it's worth it. So um, yeah, that's kind of a constant battle. If you're a new YouTuber, you're probably not going to have to worry about that. But I feel sometimes like I'm trying to drag my audience with me into the new ventures that I'm getting into as, as I feel like makes sense because they followed me through getting out of debt and investing in all this stuff. And I want them to come with me, but some of them aren't quite there yet. So they still want that get out of debt beginner advice. Um, and I have to try to remember that I need to serve them as much as I'm serving the people who are already out of debt and have like 10 apartment complexes. I know. <laughs> They're watching that's amazing. <laughs> and that's like, I think that's the cool piece too. Like that, that's your next phase of life. And I've loved following your journey too, of paying off debt on a frankly tiny salary. And the fact that you were able to do that in three years is incredibly cool. But now it's like this whole next phase is you set up that foundation for real estate investing. So let's talk about the duplex. Like I am super excited to chat about this. I, um, I really enjoy chatting about it too. It's my new favorite thing. And I, um, I just want to be like, do you like real estate? And I know, right? And I'm like, that's scary. You got to back off a little, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> like, Who is yeah. this crazy girl? <laughs> yeah. So I actually didn't have really any interest in going from being a renter to a homeowner until I learned about house hacking. So like I've always been able to find kind of screaming deals on housing. Um, I was paying 665 for a two bed, two bath, which is, which is crazy. Uh, and, but then, and I was preparing to buy a home before this, but they, they, I got a letter one day where they were like, when 
your lease renews, it's going to be nine ninety five a month. And I'm like, and this is the downside. Ooh, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a big increase. And that's not such a screaming deal anymore. And I don't blame them because as now a landowner, I want to get as much as I can out of my rentals, but yeah. So yeah, nothing against renting at all. It was always the right move for me until now, but I learned about house hacking, which if anyone watching this doesn't know what that is, essentially you rent out a room or a part of your home, or maybe you have a multifamily home and you rent out part of it and use that rent amount to pay as much of the mortgage as you possibly can, thereby decreasing your housing costs. So I have a duplex. It was $230,000. It's in College Station, Texas. And I have renters on one side of the duplex that pay $1,200 a month for their side. And then, uh, oh, and my mortgage is $1,700. So right there, I've got most of my mortgage paid. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I bought at the very beginning of COVID, which was terrifying. Oh, I can imagine. (laughs) But I had been looking at homes for a year. Uh, My real estate agent hated me at this point. I had looked at every single multifamily property that had gone up for sale in the past year. So I knew exactly what all of, I, I knew what prices were good for my area and what I could get for my money. And when this came up, I was like, yes, this will work. I ran all the numbers through all the calculators and everything like that to try to figure out if it would be a good investment, um, both now as a house hacker and later when I'm running both sides out. And it really was, it meets all like the 1% rules and everything. So $1,200 out of 1,700 is paid for by my tenants in unit A. And I live in unit B now, and my boyfriend lives with me. Now I charge my boyfriend rent because he didn't help buy the house. Damn straight. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It was actually right about this. It's so he pays $500 a month, which is just under half of what the unit is on a, um, that's, that's what I'm charging him. And he also helps me around the house with some stuff. So, um, that basically comes out to, I only have to pay. I'm so sorry. I screwed up for the numbers. They pay 1050 on a, Oh, 1050 on a, Yes. Sorry. Market is 1200. I've been working on some stuff. And so that's the number that's in my head. Um, They're actually, yeah, they're actually housing authority tenants. So they pay a little under, but during COVID I had my rent direct deposited to me each month. I didn't have to worry about it because it guaranteed. Yeah. Guaranteed rent was absolutely good thing while I was buying this house. So I'm fine with that being a little under market 1050 plus 500 with my boyfriend roommate. Um, equals I only have to pay $150 a month from my own money towards the mortgage. That's incredible. So what type of loan and how much did you have to put down? I got an FHA loan and I put 3.5 down. I actually had more saved, but, and I was planning on trying to put between five and 10% down, but COVID (laughs) and I decided that it might be a really good idea for me to hold back some of that money. I also decided to do some renovations before I moved in because I bought the house in May and I moved in at the end of July. So I was able to get the floors ripped out and replaced. There was this really ugly old dated tile, multiple different types. So I had that replaced with hardwood uh, vinyl plank and it Mm -hmm. absolutely changed how the entire place looked. I painted the entire thing myself. Yeah, <laughs> big difference. I did a lot of just little changes that made 
a huge difference. I hired a handyman for things that I couldn't do. And for things that I could do myself, I just put in the actual time. So yeah. Did you fix up the other unit, unit A as well? A little bit. There were a few things over there that needed to be done. Um, The painting job that was only half done. So I had to go in and finish it. And uh, a few, a few other little things. We had to replace a toilet. We had to replace a garbage disposal. The home warranty that the sellers paid for actually covered the bulk cost of both of those things. What? Okay. A, I did not realize that because normally I would be running away from home warranties. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about that. I heard negative things about them too. The sellers were very unwilling to do a lot of repairs as they were getting out because they'd done so they'd renovated both the kitchens to a degree and one of the bathrooms. So they were kind of like, we've put stuff in the house is basically selling as is we'll do a few things to fix X, Y, and Z, but we're not going to pay for almost anything. So my realtor got them to pay for a home warranty in case anything broke. Now I had everything inspected. I paid all the money. It was like $500 or something to get in or 600 because it was duplex. Mm. And they said everything was fine. They checked all the ACs. They checked all the blah, blah, blahs. They said everything was fine. Then of course everything breaks when it comes in. I've had the AC repaired twice (laughs) every single time, apparently. Um, But yeah, I've, I've used the home warranty a lot. Actually, all I have to do is pay a $75, um, like copay or whatever it is, I guess. And they send out a local repairman to come fix a problem. And I don't have to pay anything over that. So the toilet, 75 bucks, they completely installed a new toilet that it would have been over $300. Um, I had them come out and fix two of the showers that had like the, I said, they've renovated them. They put them on upside down. So you could either turn it hot or cold, but nowhere in the middle. And I'm like, I'm going to need that to change. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. This is not going to work. That wasn't okay. Um, And that was beyond my ability to do that. I also accidentally, um, I also wasted $75 once when I was installing. I got a new washer and dryer, new used washer and dryer off Facebook. And when I was installing them, um, and we tried to hook it up to the water and turn it on. It sprayed everywhere. And I, like, ah! and I immediately thought that my entire house was going to drown. And so I turned it off. I like panic hired a dispatch from the um, home warranty. And the guy came in and went, oh, darling, and screwed the nut about an eighth of a turn. He's And it, it was fine. It's <laughs> the best. <laughs> You're like, I'm that person. Yeah. yeah. He was, he was very nice about it. All <laughs> the day. He was like, this is my easiest call this month. <laughs> Probably. He's like, thanks. I'll take the yeah. 75. Yeah. So there have been some growing pains. I, like I said, I've been a renter my entire life. I don't intrinsically have any, um, knowledge of how to fix things other I, I can like build Ikea furniture and that's been the you know screw something in or nail something in but I haven't had a lot of experience doing that so I'm getting to learn all that stuff and I'm excited to learn all that stuff and uh the best way to learn is by doing <laughs> no doubt no doubt okay yeah. you you mentioned a couple rules like so you said the one percent rule which I I'm pretty familiar with too but for somebody that doesn't even know what that looks like like let's talk through how the heck are you financially analyzing properties in general Sure. Um, it's It's been a hot minute since I ran it through all the spreadsheet calculators, but essentially yeah. you want to make sure that you're making, so I got we got a little off track, but 
So right now I'm house hacking the place, which means my housing costs are very low. The mortgage is getting paid, but I'm still contributing to it. Right. What most people want with rental properties is to make money just at a very basic level. So, um, and some house hacks, you can actually make money while you're living in them. This is not one of them. This is a house hack where I am just offsetting my housing costs by a ton. Yeah. Um, specifically like $450 at least. Incredible. <laughs> um, so the, the way I had to run the numbers was if both units were rented out and that's where the 1% rule comes in. So you have to calculate in um, what the market running cost is. You have to calculate in how much um, essentially take out 1% or it might be higher than that. Take out a percentage for vacancy for repairs and uh, see over like 10 years, how much you're going to make on this property if there's a certain percentage of money that you have to put back into it, which of course there's going to be. Um, You're going to have to, yeah, vacancy, turnover, fixes, all that stuff, insurance. And when you calculate all those numbers in these spreadsheets, you can basically see if it meets, you can make more than 1% of the property every month off of it. And that's the that's the one percent rule. Mine barely meets it. <laughs> it was like I was to say, I think yours does yeah. meet it though. Yeah, it does. Um, but you have to run it as if you have both sides rented. So right now, it doesn't really count because I'm not paying ten fifty a month for my side of the apartment or market rate. Um, however, if I have both units rented out for ten fifty to twelve hundred, which is market rate, I will be making about five to seven hundred dollars a month off of this property, which is more than enough to um, essentially pay the entire mortgage, um, bank some to deal with vacancies, have enough put away for rep- basic repairs, renovations, turnovers, everything like that. And it'll actually be a money making property for me once I move on to the next one. It's so cool. I love, I love that you're starting with the house hacking piece too, mm-hmm. and that you still ran it as if it's both units rented. So, you know, for damn sure when you get into your next place, it's profitable. Like you're in a good situation. I think that's really wise. I I feel like if you're going to do this, you have to go into it like that. Um, If you're not going to be making money on the place, if then, and that's what all these calculations are for and their books and their guides online and everything. And hopefully eventually I'll have them all on my own website one day, but um, you never want to take a loss on a property that you're having to pay on every single month that you have to pay a mortgage on. So you have to calculate it out across the years to see what it'll look like then. What's your goal now? So you're into real estate investing. You're completely debt free. I anticipate you always will be, at least from a consumer standpoint. Other than the house, yes. <laughs> yep. I love it. I think it's cool. So what what's your next phase in life? Like, is it more real estate, or what are you thinking? I think so. Right now, I am enjoying landlording, um, despite you know all the inevitable things that are with it. Uh, <laughs> There's I'm, a lot. There are. There really, really are. I, I'm right now. I'm saving up an emergency fund for the house. Um, so I want $10,000 in the bank specifically for house repairs so that I don't have to, um, take from my own emergency savings to fund anything with the rentals. I want that there. Once again, help me sleep better at night. If you know, the roof blows off and for some reason the insurance doesn't cover it, I'll have the majority of that money there needed. And, uh, then I'll start saving up for the next property. I might do another duplex. I might do a quad. I'm not sure, but I want to do it again. I freaking love it. Okay. So (laughs) I know a lot of people, 
And I listened to, I think we both listened to bit bigger pockets, right? We're like obsessed. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. So I know with a lot of times on bigger pockets, they, the feedback that I always hear is get your cash reserve first and your down payment and then go into it. So it sounds like you're doing it kind of opposite almost where it's like, is that because you're living in the place? Is that why you decided to go that route? Basically. Um, and I, like I said, I had more saved than just the 3.5% down, um, which was like $8,000 all in. It costs just over 13 grand to purchase the house. That's inspections. That's escrow. That's everything. Um, so eight grand was the 3.5, 13 total for everything. And I had like, I had 20,000 saved. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, which obviously means I could have put 5% down, um, if not just a little bit more, but then I used two grand of that for the renos and I just kind of have the rest of that sitting in. I do not blame you with COVID either. Yeah, no, I was, I was real scared. I would be too. I mean, I, I as a self-employed person, I definitely am most days I'm like, oh shit. Yeah, it was, it was March when I put in the offer. Oh, <laughs> that's when the world's shutting down. <laughs> and so all the background, all the inspections, uh, and then, so the, once the offer was accepted, accepted, it was April. And then I was trying to run out my lease. So actual paperwork signing date was in very early May. And I was moving in at the end of July, which gave me enough time to do renovations, but also not have to pay in two different places um, for very long. Because, of course, you don't have to pay on your mortgage the first two months. Which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. So that really works out. And uh, yeah. So during this entire time, I'm like, <laughs> especially the, like, the night and the couple of days before, I'm like, am I making the biggest mistake of my life? It's $230,000 worth of. Uh, mortgage debt makes 33 grand and student loans sound piddly. <laughs> no doubt. Right. It, it's yeah. scary when you compare that, you're like, Oh shoot. Like, is this yeah. the right thing for me? Uh, yeah. But what I had to kind of convince myself of was that I was buying an income source. I was buying mm-hmm. an asset that was not like a diploma. <laughs> I mean, yes, a diploma is an asset, but it's not an asset that offers you continual returns. Once you have it, it's kind of a sunk cost. Um, this asset makes me money every single month. And not only is it uh, making me money as far as it's paying on the mortgage itself for it, but it will eventually turn into a cash generating opportunity, which is, of course, the secret of the wealthy to buy assets that make you money instead of just spending money that you get in from an hours to dollars job. And I love that you you hit on that too, because it's almost like you have to go through the crap first to clean up your own finances mm-hmm. in order to build true wealth. Like, yes, you can skip paying off debt. Like you, you in theory can do that, but it makes it a lot harder. It really does. Especially if you're low to mid range income. Yeah. If you're a doctor making hundred thousand plus dollars per year and you've got, you know, that same amount in student loans. Yeah. You can probably afford to buy a house, but honestly, it makes your finances a little more complicated than they have to be. And I feel like there are too many chances for things to go wrong. Agreed. So I, I'm not going to get into a fight with anyone that's like slow pay off your debt and do everything all at once. But that was too complicated for my little brain. Me too. Yeah. I had to clean up my own financial mess. And while doing that, I learned so many things. Like if I tried to buy a house five years ago, one, I wouldn't, I knew I wasn't ready, but it just would have opened me up to a lot more opportunities to make mistakes. 
No, I hear that. I totally hear that. I'm curious when you were finding your tenant, did you inherit this tenant or is this somebody you had to find? Yeah, I inherited the tenant. Okay. How did that process work? Um, It wasn't that bad, actually. Uh, Because I mentioned it's a housing assistance tenant, I had to go through an application process with HUD. Um, That was essentially me just sending in an application proof of new ownership. And um, the the actual tenant herself, that contract just gets changed over to you. I'm legally, it's legally necessary for me to enforce the terms of the lease that she signed. I can't like reissue a new lease. I have to fill, fulfill the terms of the lease that she had, which goes to February of next year. Yeah. So you're legally obligated to do that. As far as the housing authority side, the house had already been inspected by HUD and approved that approval goes through her entire lease. All I had to do was submit them some paperwork saying, hey, I bought this house. Here's my information. And then a direct deposit slip. Sweet. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that sounds pretty damn easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And her um, deposit just got transferred to me at closing. How do do you like have that chilling in a savings account or how did you? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I opened a house savings and checking account. And in the savings is where that deposit is plus the um, emergency fund savings. And what I have it set up is her rent direct deposits to that account from HUD, uh, Jacob's rent direct deposits to that from HUD. And then I have an automatic contribution going to that checking account. So everything goes in and then M&T Bank pulls that money out every single month. So it's completely automated. And then every month I go in and add to the house emergency fund account. That's I love this system. This is so interesting. I, I don't have a duplex, so I'm always like, how do people manage this stuff? <laughs> yeah, very, very clean. I definitely did not want there ever to be an opportunity where I could like accidentally miss a payment or something. Right. So I, I set it up very intentionally. And this will also be really good for when I'm running out both sides. This will be a business checking and savings account where I can just keep track of all the property related stuff. Okay. So like, let's fast forward. If you were to do another duplex and it's completely rented, would you, would you structure it like each property has its own checking savings or how would you, how do you think you would do that? I've thought about it and I just don't know. I, um, cause every, all real estate people do it differently. Some people have oh. accounts set up for each property and others just have like one overall thing. And some even just like do it out of their own personal accounts and, I, I just have no idea. I'm hoping to be able to just keep like a BG properties account and have everything go in and out of there. Very easy tax reasons. And the I'm glad you mentioned the both sides were rented thing because you can't house you can't buy a duplex with a conventional loan with both of them rented out. You have to take oh. residency within 90 days. Got it. Which actually like cut me out of a few properties that I was looking at that were options because often when you put up a, especially a multifamily property for sale, you re-up everyone's contracts. I couldn't look at anything that wasn't either already owner occupied or had a vacancy or would have a vacancy within like the next six months. So that was, that was kind of difficult. That would be. And that was for your, your FHA loan to get in with the smaller down. Yeah. Now, if I was purchasing a just commercial 
investment property, uh, not commercial, just investment property, I would just need the 20% down. Or um, actually for four, for a quad, if it's three units or more, you need 25. Oh, I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. That's a hefty down. Yeah. Oh my God. So for your next property, okay. So you have to live in this one for a set amount of time for the FHA guy. No, no kidding. No, you, I could live there for a month and then move on to the next one, but you do have to take oh. residency within 90 days. I did not even realize that. Okay. So if you were to move on, I started. it's very, it's very interesting. It's like, it almost feels like it's very hidden. Yeah. <laughs> so if you bought another unit, say it was a fourplex and you intend on occupying one of the then you could do another FHA with like three and a half? Potentially. Um, you're only allowed to have one FHA at a time. So yeah, more, more rules. And so I would have to pay the current home to 20% and then refinance to get another FHA with a low down payment or just do the 20% down thing or 25 if it was a four. So yeah, not bad though. I love this. Are you still thinking about a tiny house? I want a tiny house as an Airbnb. Me too. Yeah. We need to make so, this happen. So badly. Um, I still look at campers on the on like um, Facebook Marketplace <laughs> every other week. And I figured out exactly like the length max. Because that's one thing about my duplexes. I don't really have much land. There's a tiny plot in the back and essentially nothing out front. It's a parking lot. Six spots because it's three bedrooms on each side of the duplex. So six spots, um, and no real place to park a tiny home or a uh, trailer that is longer than 17 feet. So <laughs> if, if I can find like a travel trailer, like a real cute, like vintage Shasta or something, park it there, power it from my house, renovate it. I could rent it out for Aggie game day weekends. And that could be another. Oh, dude. Um, yeah. And I really, really, really want to do that. That was on the list of things that I wanted when I was purchasing um, and looking for homes. And I wasn't looking for like my dream home. I was looking for the best rental home that I could find. Mm. So I ended up going three bed, two bath, close to the university, um, you know, recently renovated, looks pretty good. And mostly it's just cosmetic stuff. You know, the house is only 19 years old. So I, I really feel like I got a really good deal. I'm not going to have to, it's brand new roof. I'm not going to have to deal with that anytime soon. So that superseded me having a little plot of land to put a tiny house on, but it was close, man. Oh, I don't blame you. I feel that completely. I know we've talked yeah. about tiny houses for a while now. <laughs> so I'm excited when you finally do that. Yeah. One day. And I, I really, I really think I could make a tiny house into something cute. Cause I can do the uh, cosmetic stuff. Oh, you totally could. Yeah, I can do Absolutely. the cosmetic stuff. Now, I don't want to, like, strip it down to the framing, but there's one out there. There's one out there at the right price. There's I'm a lot out there at the right it. price. <laughs> <laughs> I know. The issue that I find with tiny houses, too, for anyone that's, like, listening and they're like, this does sound like the dream. A lot of the really cute, quirky properties that you find are cash deals or private investing. And so it's really tough to get the fine that's the issue I've been running into is getting the financing as a self-employed person. I'm like, Oh man, I'm going to find one. Yeah. I've heard that's a real big issue. Even uh, like huge people. I watch um, Shelby and Monica church on YouTube. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, they started out as like tween beauty vloggers, but now they're both into like real estate and everything. And they have these huge YouTube empires and they come on all the time. And they're like, why can't these banks understand that we bring in like 20 grand a month from right. YouTube? Like we have the money just, and I know we're gonna have to just figure out how to be more flexible as, as just the economy changes. I think. I agree. Who had it? Who had like, Okay. So it was easy for me because I qualified for my loan with just my day job income. So I didn't have to like prove any exterior income for that. We just didn't count it at all. Um, Still able to get a really, really great interest rate. Once again, very beginning of COVID and yeah, but that would have, apparently that would have been a much more extensive process if I hadn't qualified with just my day job income. Oh, for sure. I was looking into, like a a construction loan is what it's called. So like, basically my understanding of these is it depends on the credit union or bank and their portfolios, but you would need to have the land purchased first and ideally developed. Cause that's the other piece too, is like your septic, your well, all the stuff Mm -hmm. that I'm looking for in like mountain properties, that's easily depending on how far down they have to drill, like 20 grand for a well. Septic is another 20. And then no, no. And that's the thing. And then they're like, okay, then for the construction piece, when you go to actually build, you need to have a general contractor, which I'm not. And I'd want to do the work myself and 25% down. I'm like, so tell me like a hundred thousand dollars in cash to do this. Like what? It's crazy. Yeah. It sounds like you might be better off finding kind of like a decrepit shack already, you know, already developed. Yep. But yeah, that's, that's tough. And it's rough. Yeah. And kind of out of the realm of what I would be able to do just because I can, I'm still mid income. I can only save so much. (laughs) There's there's a limit to what I can do. Now I can maximize what I have. And I feel like I do a pretty good job of that, but I I have to kind of work the system and figure out what I can do because not all avenues are open to everybody. And that's all there is to it. No, I think you were smart for doing it the way you did, at least for the first part, too, because it's like now you can save more, you can continue investing, mm-hmm. and you have that job stability for the time being, which is nice. Yeah, uh, it, it worked out. I was I looked into a lot of options, and this this was the one that seemed to work best. That's so cool. My friend, I could easily chat with you for a million years, um, but I know for time's sake, we probably need to wrap up. So tell everybody where to go to hang out with you online. Of course. And I would love to have anyone who wants to come chat wealth building on any income. So I am on YouTube at Budget Girl. So youtube.com slash Budget Girl. You can also visit me at budgetgirl.com, which is a website that I work very, very hard off of on and make no money off of uh, where I have lots of free tools and tips and all sorts of stuff there. Ton of printables, ton of freebies because I love doing those. And also on social. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, I'm at Go Budget Girl. And I am newly on TikTok at Budget Girl. I'll warn you, I'm not great at TikTok. What? I didn't know you were on there. I got to go follow you. <laughs> not great at TikTok, but I'm trying. <laughs> I, I, enjoy, I enjoy consuming the TikToks, not so much the making of the TikToks, but the TikToks. <laughs> you sound like my mom, the Google. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, okay. So I have to tell you this one thing. So, you know, the I'm fine the, or this is fine dog in oh, the yeah. room. So our my work is having a Halloween um, office decorating contest. So I actually, I don't know if you can see it. So what I did was I printed out 
the little this is fine dog and made a sign and made some <laughs> flames and I was <laughs> to sit in my office window because I'm a lazy decorator but I wanted to participate and I asked this student who was sitting out on that pavilion um, to help me like figure out how like where to put it because she was on the outside and I was on the inside mm -hmm. taping and she was like what is this and I'm like you've never seen the this is fine dog meme and she's like no ma'am and I'm like I'm like, oh no, it starts. <laughs> it starts here, apparently. It's the worst, man. I feel that every time I hear that stuff, too. I'm like, no, are you like, serious? I'm, I'm fully aware that I'm not a denier that I am now in my 30s and that, you know, things that I, I thought some things were sacred, okay? I thought that this is fine dog was sacred. Yeah. Everyone relates to that, right? It's depressing, man. <laughs> I hear that. Yeah. Are you, are you by chance down for some rapid fires? Sure. Yes. Okay. I love this one. What is one purchase you recently made that has made your life better? Um, a weighted blanket because I'm old now. <laughs> it's very nice. I feel like I'm just being slightly compressed and it, uh, it makes me calm down. It makes me calm down like a thunder shirt on a dog. Really? Yeah, I get too I get too wound up or anxious, and my list gets too long, and Jake <laughs> will just walk in and be like, "Whoa, <laughs> I'm better now, thanks." That's so good. I love that. That's good to hear they actually work. I've always been curious about that. Yeah, and they're so expensive too. And I'll admit, I actually didn't buy it. Jacob did, but it has made my life a lot better. <laughs> Probably his too. Yeah. Okay, next question for you. I personally am a, I'm just obsessed with people's morning routines. So what is your current morning routine? Um, so I am not a morning person. I have what I call the night rage. And, <laughs> and that means that I get basically nothing done in the morning. I uh, wake up, brush my teeth. I do make the bed and open the, the windows, get dressed, grab my lunch, run out the door usually get to work about five to 10 minutes late, if we're being honest. <laughs> on days I work at home, obviously, I just, I roll out of bed at eight o'clock on the dot and open my computer and then kind of growl at it until Jacob brings me coffee. Um, night. Jacob's awesome. <laughs> yes. um, at, at night is when the productivity happens, especially after kind of everyone goes to bed, the dogs are down. Um, that's when I like, make my lunch, you know, create like a budget girl product, schedule stuff, edit stuff, run around the house, watering plants. And I just kind of turn into this little night creature that, and then I look up and it's 2am and I'm like, crap, I have to go to bed. I'm going to be so tired in the morning. Whoa. So you go to bed pretty late. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I'm impressed. I love it that you have your night routine. I think that's super cool. Yeah. That's, that's when like the flossing and like the moisturizing happens yes. when you know sometimes I take like a nice relaxing bath um and actually like get stuff done the morning is not the time when I get things done I it, find that for a lot of creatives too that's interesting I've tried and there's so much respect for early birds you know the people that get up at like 5 a.m and get everything you know work out and everything done before the day and I've tried I swear to god I've tried but it is not me mm -hmm. the night is me I love that yeah, I can, you, I can you. exercise at night. I will go out at like 10 p.m. and walk the dog around the neighborhood or something. I just that's that's when I am awake. This is awesome. You're gonna be like neighborhood watch. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's so good. Okay, next question for you. I know you are a big traveler too. So where is one location you're dying to travel to? Hmm, Yosemite. Yes. We're planning a girls trip there. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really excited. I um I I guess I wouldn't really consider myself a traveler. I didn't do anything. I I I went out of the country for the very first time this right before the pandemic hit. In January, I went to Barcelona. It was actually a work-related trip, so they paid for it all, which was the best thing on the planet. And I was planning on going to New York and L.A. this year. I've been to L.A. before because I have a friend that lives there, but I was planning on to go on going to both those places this year and COVID. <laughs> so I was just kind of getting into the the travel groove, but life will open up again. It will. It and, will. And, and when it does, yeah, all the fun places. <laughs> Okay, last question for you. In your opinion, what is the secret to financial success? A budget. It's, I think, it's fairly simple. I think people make it more complicated than it has to be. But when it comes down to personal finance, you and the money that you bring in and the money you spend is a fairly simple equation. If you track it in a budget... I don't care what kind of budget. It can be pencil and paper. It can be, you know, written on your bathtub wall. It could be in an app, in a spreadsheet. If you track it and you accurately track it all month long, you will know where your money went and you can make decisions on for where to go. A lot of people find budgeting very restrictive and I completely understand. I did it first too, but then I figured out that I could save for things like travel or a weighted blanket or other stuff that I want um, and still meet my money goals. And that was just the most freeing thing in the world to me. If you're willing to commit to actually tracking where your money goes every single month, you will be better with money. You will be able to do the things that you want to do with it. I love it. My friend, this was such a good conversation. I seriously enjoyed learning all of your house hacking tips too. That's like so new to me. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. I will happily talk about that anytime. I've been uh, deeply obsessed with it for about the past year and a half or so and uh, uh, maybe two years. And I'm just, I'm really excited about everywhere it can take me because housing is one of those things that most people consider a uh, non-variable expense. Mm -hmm. It's just, you uh, you know, when you're talking about cutting your budget to either save for something or pay off debt or do anything, you have to, most of the time you can only work with your variable expenses, you know, clothing, entertainment, everything like that, you consider housing something that is inflexible. And I feel like when I learned about house hacking, someone was like, you can flex on that. You could make it so you don't have to pay for your housing, or at least you don't have to pay as much. And that just kind of like blew my mind. And it's real. Like it's not some thing that only rich people can do, which is what I originally thought about real estate investing. Uh, You know, back in the day, I never thought that I, I like a reporter's salary could ever become someone who owned and managed properties and was a landlord and made money off of it. It's totally attainable for an average person. You just, you have to educate yourself about it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I think you are such an inspiration and I'm so grateful that you came on to share all of your wisdom with us. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. 
Okay, what'd you think? If you love this episode as much as I did, do me the biggest favor, take a screenshot and tag me on social media to let me know that you're listening in. It always is so much fun to see who's listening and it's fun to connect with you offline-ish, you know? Anyway, so make sure you take a screenshot and tag me. I'm at Whitney underscore Hanson underscore co and I would love to meet you. All right, thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you next week for another episode of the Money Nerds Podcast. Bye.